All right, go ahead, take your Bibles out. We're in Daniel chapter four today. We're continuing our book of Daniel, our study through the Old Testament prophetic book of Daniel. Daniel chapter four, if you need help finding that, it's kind of towards the middle of your Bible. You can look in the front of your Bible, it has a table of contents. And then uh, I, I always take this for granted, but I think it's important if you're newer to your Bible, every book in the Bible is broken up into chapters and verses. So when I say Daniel chapter four, Daniel chapter four, and then the smaller numbers are the verse numbers. And today uh, we're gonna be covering all of chapter four. And so uh, Lord willing, he will do a great work as we dig in. Chicago is a city of skyscrapers, isn't it? I mean, we only have to look out that wall to see uh, a number of skyscrapers that our city has been founded, not founded on, but our city was built up uh, to rival some of the great skyscrapers in the entire world. Actually, there's uh, some great history in the city of Chicago in terms of the architecture of our city, and they had trouble when they first began building high-rise buildings in the city because of the soil. Uh, Those who are architects in this city, some of the great architects in American history were those who helped build Chicago up from trying to figure out what do you do with the kind of watery soil that we have as a result of being right off the Great Lakes here. Chicago's a city of skyscrapers, and, and what, what you need to know about skyscrapers is if you, want a big, if you want to build tall, if you want to go high, you first got to dig deep. You can't build high if you don't build a foundation deep enough to hold against the wind and the pressure that comes from building so high. For every story you want to go higher, you first got to dig deeper into the stone, as far deep as you can go, so that you can keep building higher and higher and higher. The deeper you dig the foundation, the higher the building can go. So it is with the Christian faith. If you truly want to soar, in what the Bible describes as mature spirituality, you first have to do the hard work of digging very deep. The very uncomfortable work of rooting out sin, of navigating the human heart in all of its fallenness, of navigating where sin in all of its ugliness has pervaded into nooks and crannies of your heart that you really don't want to even confess to. Because we like to imagine the best version of ourselves. We like to imagine that sin has not fully pervaded our brokenness, our our heart, and that we really are, are sinful, but not that sinful. But if you want to soar in mature Christianity, you have to first dig a foundation that's deep enough. Today, we're going to be discussing the hellish horrors of the sin of pride. And I chose those two words very intentionally. We will be looking at the hellish horrors of the sin of pride. And I want to ask permission of you, in fact, more than permission, I want to ask of you that as I teach today on the, the sin of pride, that you do not look to the person next to you and think that this is a message for them, or the person in your life who you tend to think of as rather a proud person, but that you allow the Holy Spirit to do some of that foundational work, digging into your own heart, and asking, where is this nasty sin called pride? The very thing that brought Satan down in the first place, working its way through your life. Proverbs chapter 16, verse five. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. Oh Lord, let that not be any of us. Proverbs 25, 27. It is not good to eat much honey, nor is it glorious to seek one's own glory. A lot of wisdom there. It's not good to eat too much honey, to load yourself up on the sweet things of life, nor is it glorious to seek one's, nor is it glorious to seek one's own glory. The deeper you begin today to trudge through that murky, often unnavigated space of your heart, the more you will be able to begin to build a new foundation and go higher in your faith. 
Today's text, we encounter the second dream of Nebuchadnezzar. If you've been with us as we've studied Daniel so far, you'll recall Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon, the greatest empire in the world at the time that Daniel was a young man. Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom was vast and extreme. And in chapter two, he had this dream. It was one of the great prophecies in Old Testament scripture that laid out a succession of four, in fact, five kingdoms. The fifth one being the kingdom of Jesus Christ that was established right in the middle of the Roman Empire exactly as Nebuchadnezzar's dream foretold that would happen. Today, we get to the second dream of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, chapter four is one of the most interesting texts in uh, all of scripture. For one peculiar reason, it's written firsthand by Nebuchadnezzar. That's an interesting thing for scripture. Chapter four, most of it, there's a few sections where it switches to the third person, but most of it is Nebuchadnezzar's firsthand account of how he moved from a pagan emperor to a worshiper of the God of the scriptures. Whoa, okay? Now, there's some debate whether or not the conversion Nebuchadnezzar had was genuine. So the guy who I prayed his prayer earlier, John Calvin, one of my heroes of the faith, he says that it wasn't a genuine conversion because historic history would prove otherwise. History would have told us that truly Nebuchadnezzar converted in his faith, external to biblical history. Many other commentators, many other people throughout history have said, actually, if you only go by the text of scripture, you are left with being convinced that Nebuchadnezzar, that pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar, genuinely believed in the God of scripture. That's the position I hold to and I'll be teaching to today. One of the things that that reminds us of is that this is why we pray for our governmental leaders. Scripture tells us, pray for those in authority. One of the reasons we do is what we're praying is, you've done it before in Nebuchadnezzar's life. You can do it again. And so we pray not only for our own government leaders, but across the globe where we see war breaking out, where we see governmental leaders who look to be acting like pagan kings from the past, we are praying that they would experience a Nebuchadnezzar-type conversion, and that as a result, kingdoms would be changed for the name of Jesus. Today we wrestle with the theme of pride. Nebuchadnezzar will be telling his firsthand account of how he came to faith in the God of the scriptures. And the story is that of him having to live in the consequences of his own pride. And as he falls and descends into an anarchaic life, he finally begins to realize that a proud life is no life at all. And he begins to humble himself underneath the fullness of God. What is pride? Pride is the wicked delusion that we are more than we are and that God is less than he is. And if left unrepentant, pride will destroy you. Nebuchadnezzar. Let's begin this text. Nebuchadnezzar frames this entire chapter. Now, mine's over two pages. You might want to flip back and forth with me. At the front, you'll see some of your text, verse four, is indented, like it's poetry. And then if you go to the very end, you'll see verse 34 and 35 is also indented, like it's poetry. Nebuchadnezzar, in telling this story, frames it in two doxologies, two praises. It's a way of, of beginning and ending a whole story with praise, kind of like Christians should begin their day. You wake up in the morning, what do you do? You pray a doxology. Lord, you are good and this is your day. You go to bed at night. Lord, you are good and this was your day and you are king over my life. Kind of like beginning and ending a day with doxology. That's how this chapter is laid out. Just in terms of framework. Let's look at this doxology. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all his peoples, nations and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. 
It has seemed good to me, again, this is first person Nebuchadnezzar, very interesting, to show the signs and wonders that the most high God, that's the God of scripture, as opposed to all the other gods that he's ever worshiped in his life, that the most high God has done for me. Here's his doxology. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. Look at how he praises God. Keep in mind, this is Nebuchadnezzar. This is a man who knew kingdoms. He knew how long kingdoms lasted. In this life, if you, if you rule a kingdom, you may get 40 years out of it, right? Maybe 50 if you're a long-lasting ruler that likes to hoard power. Here, he looks to the king of kings and realizes and recognizes as a smaller king up to the king of kings and says, your kingdom lasts eternally. He's recognizing his place underneath all of this. God's kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Then he begins to get into a series of events, much like we saw in chapter two. He has this dream that frightens him. You recall that from what we've already studied. He says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. And in that dream, he gets very afraid of the contents of it, just like chapter two, and he calls his enchanters and he calls the magicians around him. None of them can answer him of what they mean, which I find interesting, because in a moment, we're gonna look at what the contents of the dream were. It's not that hard to figure out what the dream was about. So my guess is that these enchanters were quite afraid to tell him the contents of this dream. Unlike Daniel, who had the boldness standing on the promises of God, as we just sang, and walked up to the most powerful man in the world and told him what it meant. He was willing as a follower of God to speak truth to power and authority, no matter what it cost him personally. Let that one sink with you for just a little bit. Starting in verse 10, what were the contents of this dream? The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth. Its Its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher. Now, that's a word for a type of angel, okay? A watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said, Thus chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him, notice how we've switched now from a description of a mighty tree over the earth to a person. Let him, so the tree represents a person, be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know, to the end that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. All right, pause there. What's the dream? Just quick synopsis. He dreams of this huge tree that's so big you can see it from everywhere on the entire earth, okay? Now, 
It's so wonderful. Birds are taking nests in its branches. It's feeding, it's feeding all the people. But then it's chopped down. A band of iron is placed around the tree. And we saw that the tree is a metaphor. It's a symbol for a person. And whoever this person was is going to go insane. They're going to actually lose their mind for a season of seven times. That's biblical prophetic language for seven years. Okay, For seven whole years, this person's going to lose their mind. What's the reason for all of it? Verse 17 Verse 17, this sentence is by the decree of the watchers, a decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end for the purpose that the living may know that the most high rules. Why does God give dreams? Why does God work sovereignly through all types of circumstances? He's working to the ends, to a particular ends, that we might know, that people might know that the most high rules. We are prone, just like Nebuchadnezzar, just like his enchanters and magicians, just like every other culture around the globe. We're prone to forget that there is a God who rules and reigns over every part of our life and over all of existence. And one of the tools he uses to remind people is dreams. He gives dreams for a reason. And if you look at world history, if you look at current what's happening in the news all through the Middle East, God is giving dreams over and over again This is happening especially in Muslim contexts around the globe where Muslims are reporting thousands upon thousands of dreams they're having of someone. Oftentimes the dreams look like this. It's someone dressed in all white, shining gloriously, telling them to go to a particular pastor to learn the truth about God. And right now across the Middle East, thousands upon thousands, tens of thousands are coming to faith in Jesus just that way. A wonderful part of world history that's not reported in our news very often. Daniel chapter 4, verse 19, or verse 20 through 20, uh, 22. Daniel begins to interpret the dream for Nebuchadnezzar. He says this, The tree you saw, which grew and became strong, so its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and whose branches the birds in the heaven lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to the heavens and your dominion to the ends of the earth. So not too hard to figure this out, right? Who's the tree? The tree is Nebuchadnezzar. His kingdom reaches to the ends of the earth. That's why it was visible all over the globe. It's a representation of Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. Verse 24 and 25. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the most high, which has come upon my Lord, the king that you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and he gives it to whom he will. So what was the interpretation of this one of losing all the leaves on the tree and, and this person then becoming mad? It's a direct interpretation. Nebuchadnezzar is going to be driven mad. He's going to be driven insane for seven years. Now, keep going. Verse 26, And it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree. Your kingdom, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may be perhaps a lengthening of your prosperity. That moment right there in chapter four is critical. Daniel's a good Christian friend, isn't he? Daniel's a right-hand man to Nebuchadnezzar. 
but he's also friends with this man. We've seen that. The way he's gentle with him here reveals the friendship those two men had developed. And even, it goes the other way, Nebuchadnezzar wanted Daniel's opinion on the dream. They had developed a friendship over time. Daniel's looking out over what is to come for Nebuchadnezzar if if he stays on the path he's on. And that his friend is going to be driven mad. He will face the consequences of his pride. Nebuchadnezzar will. And Daniel makes this loving, Christian, gentle appeal to his friend. Nebuchadnezzar, repent before it's too late. Change your ways. Trust in the God of Scripture. Bow the knee to the God who is, oh, he's already shown himself to you, Nebuchadnezzar. Don't you remember what he's done? Remember my buddies in the lion's den, Nebuchadnezzar? Remember the dream you had before where you were about to kill everybody in chapter two, but, but God gave an interpretation through me? Bow now and maybe God will lengthen your days and you won't face those consequences. That is a good friend. Christians, can I tell you, in your life, we are surrounded with folks who are very far from God and who are living lives that will have consequences for them, both in this life and in the life to come. And it is not being a loving friend to not say anything. That's not the definition of love in the Bible. It's not loving to know where someone is headed and the consequences that are coming on their life for the decisions they're making by the standard of God. And you know with utter clarity and you just keep your mouth quiet You never find a way to lovingly and gently and coming alongside them as a friend speak truth into their life. There's nothing loving about that. It might feel like you're being a pacifist in in not saying anything and that you're keeping a relationship open. But but actually what you're doing is you're, you're permitting ongoing sin to habitually go with no warning when, by the way, you're the Christian in their life. You might be waiting for a time when they stumble into a church and for a preacher to tell them that there's, there's consequence coming for their sin, but you might be the preacher in their life. You're the Christian God's got right there to tell them the truth. And look at how Daniel does it. He doesn't bash him on the head. He, he doesn't take his feet out from he, he He's clear, he's direct, but he's a good friend. And he's pleading with his friend. That's what we gotta do. We have to find a way to get out of this, don't break this comfort that we have with our friends and never speak about the reality of what's to come. We've got to get through it. Daniel has a plea for repentance. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be accepted to you. Break off your sins and practice righteousness. Now, does Nebuchadnezzar change his ways? The answer is no, he doesn't. Let's jump into verses 28 through 33 and let's read how the dream came to fulfillment. All of this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, so a year later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. That's how this chapter started. He's walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, here's the quote from the king. Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Let me read that again. Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Simple sentence that probably is not too far off from the kinds of thoughts we've all had many times. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. 
The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled again against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox. His body was wet with the dew of heaven until his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws." The consequences of pride. Let's pause at this point in the story. And let's take the lens off Nebuchadnezzar. And let's place the lens on ourselves. Remember how we started. If we want to go tall, if we want to be spiritually mature, we first got to do some of the hard work of digging deep. Pride is the wicked delusion, not only that we are more than we are, but that God is less than he is. Just like Nebuchadnezzar, we make these same types of statements regularly in our life. And the spiritually mature person is the one who does not convince themselves that they don't make these types of statements or they don't think these types of thoughts, but is the, is the person who's doing the hard work to ask, where are these types of thoughts living inside of me? And then going through the spiritual disciplines of rooting these out so that you can keep going higher and higher. Just like Nebuchadnezzar, our pride is seen in all different types of places. The little comments that we make about ourselves. The thoughts we have about ourselves when we judge others. And even in our minds, we place ourselves on a pedestal over others. As the type of person who has it together, if only they could live their life more like we live our life. That type of judgment of seeing the, law, the speck in someone else's eye without ever truly doing the spiritual work to take the log out of our own. What is that but Pride. What is a lack of prayerlessness in our prayer lives, a lack of prayer over our church life and praying for our government leaders, if that is not pride? The tip of spiritual pride, by the way, because a lack of prayer in your life is an over-evaluation of yourself because it reveals you're really depending on yourself. And you've under-evaluated God because you're really not depending on him. Sure, you trust the promises, but in terms of actually engaging in the promises through the power of prayer and trusting God to work through your life in different ways, it's almost non-existent. What is prayerlessness but pride lived out in actuality? See, we like to pick on Nebuchadnezzar, but what I want you to see is that we are Nebuchadnezzar on our worst days, and but by the grace of God, he has sustained us from not falling into the level of consequences that Nebuchadnezzar fell into. Or perhaps he has. Perhaps you're going through some stuff in your life. Perhaps there's some hardship. And I don't want to speak directly into what it is because I don't know all your situations. But maybe there are consequences for our sin. And maybe what you're going through is discipline. And the proper step is repentance and restoration. Pride is a delusion. First part of my definition Nebuchadnezzar was deluded when he said, Is not this great Babylon which I built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? What a deluded thing to say. As if a man, a, sim a simple single man, all on his own, was capable of doing such a, a thing. In every proud and self-centered thought, in every idea that we ever believe in our mind, what we are doing is we are raging against the reality that we are not in control of our lives. That, and that's pride. So every self-centered, boisterous, proud thought is a, a rage against the reality that truly we're not in control of our lives. It's very uncomfortable to have this realization. This is why something like COVID 
makes us very uncomfortable because all of a sudden we're very much exposed to the reality that we're not in control of the bacteria and the viruses that go through this earth. Those things are out of our control, just like everything else around our life. We like to take great satisfaction in our accomplishments and our self-worth in our wealth in our resources in all that we've created. But in reality, have, have, have we done all of that on our own the way we like to think we have, the way Nebuchadnezzar thought he had? Did we choose where we were born and who our parents were? Did we choose who our neighbors would be, the influences who would be in our life over the course of our life? We just as easily could have been born on the outskirts of Afghanistan in a, in a Muslim context where war has just overtaken their entire land. We didn't choose that. That wasn't your choice. You didn't choose the personality you'd have, the, the mental illnesses that, that we have, the diseases that we carry in our life. You, those things you did not necessarily choose to be in your life. The, the major things that dictate who we are, how we are, how we think, how we process, weren't those all out of your control? I don't want to make the case that there was nothing in your life that was meaningful. Absolutely, our lives have meaning and your will is meaningful. But when you look at the grand scheme of things, there's very little that you actually have control of. And so for us to have a proud thought like Nebuchadnezzar, look, look at what I've done. Look at what I've accomplished. Look at the money I've accumulated. Look at the home I built. Look at the business I built. Look at the network I have. Look at the, look at the person I am today. Was it really you that did that? See, the person who worships the God of the Bible is aware that there's a God who's sovereign over every aspect of our life, even the personality we've been assigned, even the stories that are ours. And the first step in rooting pride out is to, is to remove the delusion that we're in control and that we've accomplished something. And, and to restore the proper truth, which is that God is sovereign over everything and has assigned us a particular life to live. And therefore, in all things, we give glory to God. Do you see the difference there? Not only is pride a delusion, but it is a wicked delusion. We know that because in this chapter, what we see are consequences for sin. What is sin? Sin is a rebellion to God. It's a raging against God. And the reason there's consequences for it is because all sin is evil and has far more consequences to it than just impacting our own life. Every sin you carry, even the private sins in your life, impact everyone else in this room. Do you know that? This is why as Christians in a church family, we're so deliberate about living life in deep community with each other and not even allowing our brothers and sisters to permit habitual sin to go on in their life. Because if you've got a broken habit in your life, you're bringing sin and demonic influence into community in different places in your life. And so out of love for your brothers and sisters in Christ, you're going to break that habit. You're going to go to the cross and trust in the Holy Spirit and learn to live in the victory of Christ, establishing resurrection power into the brokenness of your life, not for your own good only, but because you're part of a family and we all need you. And this place is only as healthy as everybody. You see that? See, we, we tend to be so isolated in our thinking, thinking it's all about us. How proud. What a proud thought. It's all about us. You won't find that in scriptures. See, see, biblical family, biblical church is nothing like the individualistic Western spirituality that we've developed in what we call church today. It's a family. 
where we know each other and we're overcoming sin for the sake of each other. There's consequences for sin. Sometimes God disciplines. Now, I'm gonna do something that's very uncomfortable right now. I wrote this picture for us and I almost cut it out late last night and I've decided to leave it in. I think it's important. I want you to imagine for a moment a man in the pit of hell. I won't leave you there, I promise. But permit yourself to imagine this. The darkest, gloomiest corner of the furthest pit of hell is a dark room where a lone man sits in his rags, surrounded by nothing. Can you see that? That man in this world was a pretty wonderful man in the eyes of the world. Maybe he was a charitable man in this life. Other people looked up to that man. He was the kind of guy who had things together. Jesus told a story very similar to this, by the way, with the rich man and Lazarus. Other people admired him. He was the kind of person that other men would have said, I, I want to be more like that guy. He had servants working for him. He was prominent and powerful. But in hell, the delusion is stripped away, isn't it? Hell is the place, in one regard, this is not all hell is, but but in this scenario, hell is the place where the delusion he lived under in this life, that he was responsible for all his accomplishments in this life, the fullness of that pride is being lived out in full in that dark, doom, gloomy corner of hell, is it not? What's happening in that corner? He gets to be king over everything that he's able to be king over. He's got his room. He's... He's not bending the knee to any greater authority. He's, he's his own man. He, he, he writes the law in that room. And he dictates how it goes to the fullest extent that is his to dictate. A room of emptiness. That man wanted to be his own king. He can be it. That man loved to believe that he had accomplished all of the assets in his life, his, his wealth, his network, his home, his, his cars, his, uh, his clothing, everything he had. Look at the wisdom that he put together to, 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 to accomplish all of this. But in, in hell, the delusion is stripped away, and he truly is surrounded by everything that he accomplished in this life on his own. Is he not? And what is that? An empty room of nothing but darkness. Stay there for a second. Pride left unchecked has consequences. And we live in a delusion. And the delusion is that our pride is not that bad. That that man is not us. That our little thoughts about judging others and establishing ourselves as the person who's figured it out and, and we're really the one who's got it together and if people could just be more like us, that's the delusion Nebuchadnezzar had. That's the delusion the man in hell had. If you read the sentence Nebuchadnezzar said that got him seven years of behaving like an animal, by modern standards, it's not that bad a sentence. 
He's walking on a palace. He is the king. And he's saying, I built a pretty good residence for myself. By modern standards, seven years of insanity is not a, a proper judgment in consequence. But God knows true judgment. God knows the depth of sin, and he brings it. Now, some of you might be thinking right now, the man in hell and the fullness of the consequences that came on Nebuchadnezzar is not me. My pride is there, I know, but it's not that bad. And I want to submit to you right now that if that's the thought that's going through your mind, maybe you're in the most dangerous position of all. Because is that not the most proud statement you could possibly make? That you of all people have so traveled the depth of spiritual maturity that you have managed to root deep pride out of your life? You know, I make a habit of reading the, the, the old saints that have gone before us, the historic Puritans. You should see these men in their, in their 20s. They were light years ahead of where most of us will ever get in our life spiritually. But in their 60s and 70s, they were broken on their knees, rooting out deeper and deeper places of pride where they saw it lingering in their life. I'm just being honest with you. You in this room right now are gonna tell me, I know this community, you're gonna tell me that you've gone further than they went? You've done the spiritual discipline and the work to root pride out to that degree? Hear the plea, the Daniel-like plea to this church. I love you. And as I read this text and I labored over this this week, I am the first one to stand before you to tell you, I, I have so far to go when it comes to pride. Every thought I've described in this room goes through my head on a week-to-week -week basis. And that's the worst of all, because I have to preach this. And I have an account of accounting before God as a preacher to you. But, but I see it in me. I, I see it work its ugliness through me. And I hate it. But I know for the sake of the community, if, if I don't get to work, if I don't begin the process of rooting pride out in all of its ugliness, even the little ways it comes through, then this church will not be healthy. But it's not just me. It's a family that's got to get after that work together. Nebuchadnezzar was allowed to drift into insanity as a consequence for his sin. But look at what happened. Verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, what did he do? He did one simple thing. He lifted his eyes up to heaven. That's it. What is he doing? He's walking around like a cow on the grass for seven years eating grass. And then he does this. Well, this isn't working. He does that. He just looks up. And what does it say? And my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion's an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures forever. Grace is always offered to those who look up to the cross of Christ. If you are stuck in pride today, and look, my aim today is to bring a level of conviction that makes you say, I've got to do something. What do you have to do? What needs to happen so that this does not happen to us? You need to look up to Jesus Christ because on the cross, what is happening is far more than a martyr dying for a religious system. On the cross, one man is taking the consequence for your pride and all of their sin in its fullness on his own shoulders. On the cross, one man is 
bearing the full weight of the fullness of our sin in all of its fullness, in all of its depth, even the the places that you will never get to in this life and you'll never be able to expose because we don't quite get fully glorified in this life. All of that sin nailed to one man on the cross so that when you look up and you place your faith in Jesus Christ, God no longer makes you pay the hellish consequences for your sin, but rather Jesus paid the hellish consequences on your behalf. Amen? That's the fullness of the gospel. And so what do we need to do as Christians? What's the response today? You need to behold Christ. See, if if you walk out from this sermon and and you start thinking this, you think, I need to go out and be a more humble person. That could be the most proud thing you could do. Because it's very easy to actually go do a bunch of humble things and think how humble you are. (laughs) What we need to do is learn to sit at the feet of Jesus and behold Christ and allow the fullness of who he was through an intimate prayer life with him to become who we are. To literally infuse Christ-like living and Christ-like thinking and the word of God into us at such a deep level, not on the surface, but working its way through us in such a way that we begin to live like Christ. What was the type of life Christ lived? It was selfless. It was constantly doing the lowliest work, not out of a desire to be seen as the most humble, but because he was the epitome of humility. Philippians chapter 2 He humbled himself by taking on the form of a servant. See, to to truly repent, yes, there's a process of saying, Lord, I'm sorry, and do the work. Do the work in me. But then to see victorious growth and overcoming it, what you need to do is stay in that place and begin to develop a life of saying, I want more of Jesus. I want to look like Jesus. Where I go, I want people to say they've... They were in touch with Jesus today in some way because I was with them and there was this humble joy, this this bold confidence, not in themselves, but on the word of God. Man, we got a long ways to go. You behold Christ. Andrew Murray, who wrote a historic book, I've quoted often, wrote a wonderful book on humility. And and one of the things you take away from that book is, you know, if you want to live a humble life, a, a selfless life, it starts with little things like, putting the dishes away when the dishwasher's done, right? It's not these bold things. It's just, it's the simple, it's the simple, I'm gonna, the little task, I'm gonna love somebody. That's humility. And and not doing it to be seen, not doing it to get a thank you, not just doing it because it needed to get done, right? Andrew Murray writes this, I'll close on this quote. He says, accept every humiliation. Look upon every fellow man who tries or vexes you as a means of grace to humble you. Ooh, that's convicting. Use every opportunity of humbling yourself before your fellow man as a help to abide humble before God. In other words, every moment in your life where you want to one-up someone else, rather choose to see it as a moment to, to learn new areas of humility in your life before God. Use every opportunity of humbling yourself before your fellow man as a help to abide humble before God. God will accept such humbling of yourself as the proof that your whole heart desires it, as the very best prayer for it, as your preparation for his mighty work of grace, when by the mighty strengthening of his Holy Spirit, he reveals Christ fully in you. 
so that he, in his form of a servant, is truly formed in you and dwells in your heart. Pray with me. Lord, that's what we want. We want to be Christ-like humble servants. And we hate sin, all of it, Lord. And some days and some passages just reveal so much sin in our life. Lord, I pray over the sin of pride in all of its forms as we're thinking on our own lives, where it is, where it's rooted, where it's, where it's working our way through our life and has been present for us. God, I pray that you would begin a work of rooting that pride out. That we would never boast in anything of ourselves. That every boast would be in who Christ is. Every boast would be in what God has done for us. That we know and love Lord, the Lord Jesus. That's our boast. Everything else we, as, we count as loss, says Paul, compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Lord, do a work here today. I pray for a repentant spirit in this room today. And I pray, God, that as we go, that you would not allow Satan and his demons to distract us from the work ahead of honest repentance, of honest spiritual growth, of deep maturity in Christ, going on our knees before our God and asking him to root out sin in all of its forms. Do that work, Lord. We permit it in our lives. We're open to it. In Christ's name, amen.